Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. Coming up later in this week's show, we'll be hearing from Alison Anders, writer and director of one of my favourite movies, The Brilliant Grace of My Heart. But first, Glenn Close is shaping up as a strong contender for the Best Actress Award at the forthcoming Oscars for her role in The Wife. Through the miracle of technology, I spoke to Glenn Close about her role in The Wife and also about which version of Fatal Attraction she prefers. I am aware of Joe's various indiscretions. His affairs have nothing to do with you. That's a deep-seated fear of inadequacy. Don't paint me as a victim. I am much more interesting than that. Don't walk away from me, diamond! I can't do it anymore. I can't take it. I can't take the humiliation. What are we doing? John, we're not bad people. I think you are sick and tired of Joe Castleman. I would like to convey to you the warm congratulations of the Swedish Academy. You have reinvented the very nature of storytelling. Tell me about yourself. Do you have an occupation? I do. And what is that? I am a kingmaker. Congratulations on the wife and uh, the extraordinary uh, awards attention that it's getting. Let's begin by, I've seen the film twice and I interviewed Jonathan Price about it when he had just finished making it. And I'm very Uh conscious of how much you can or can't tell people about the story, bearing in mind that some people may not have seen the film. So I'm going to ask you to just say for the listeners as much as you would like them to know about what the film's about. Well, and I'm sure Jonathan said this, it's about a very real, very complex uh, marriage. You see you see Joan and Joe in the beginning of their relationship, and you see them, uh, you know, 40-something years later on their way for him to collect a Nobel Prize. And um, in that journey uh, to Stockholm and the whole experience of the prize, you, all these Secrets, you know, become revealed, and um, it's kind of like a mystery, and it's very much about a complex, you know, relationship, and it's a lot about love as well. So, I mean, it's surprising. I think, I think, uh, it, 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 I, it holds audiences, and um, it has the partnership of me with Jonathan, which is one of the best of my career. Tony, you mean smoke? I can smell it. I went into a cafe and it was filled with smoke. Ugh. 
You've been drinking too. Yeah, I had a vodka. In the middle of the day? Yes, Joe, in the middle of the day. You know, Johnny, you can't be doing this. You can't be showing up at functions with alcohol on your breath. You are the star of the big show, so why would anyone possibly care? What the hell has gotten into you? I don't like to be lectured to. I'm not a child. <laughs> oh, God damn it, Joe. What? Are, are you going to stop throwing your clothes all over the floor? I am so sick and tired yeah, of picking it up after you. What's that? Uh, I got hungry. I bought some walnuts. Let me see it. Hmm? It's just a walnut. Can I see it? What are you talking about? Can Give I see it? Give it to me. It? What are you doing? Give it to me. Don't be ridiculous. Give it, it, it to me. <laughs> so, while I was out being a drunken lush, you were seducing the luscious Linnea? Nothing happened. Oh, don't you dare insult my intelligence. Don't you dare. Can you describe what Joan is like? How do you feel about her as a person? I think if you met Joan in a room, you'd find a, a reserved woman. She's not the kind of woman you would ever see in the middle of a of a guffawing group of people. You know, she's she's quite shy. She holds her cards very close to her chest. I think people would find her um, not always forthcoming and a little mysterious. There's a scene very early on when we see her sort of taking care of her husband, picking crumbs out of his beard, mm -hmm. straightening his clothes up. And, and she seems to have dedicated everything to making him presentable. And there's a sort of tension through the film as to whether that's loving or whether it's something that she's just fallen into. What do you feel their relationship is? I think by the time you see them, it's become routine. It's something she does automatically but she suppresses a lot. And I think it becomes harder and harder to keep everything suppressed. I mean, that's basically the, her journey. But yeah, I think she's chosen to be in the background. She'd much rather be holding his coat and watching people than always being part of the conversation. But um, I think things start to change during this journey to the Nobel Prize. We see in flashback, we see her at a younger age when they first meet. And of course, the younger incarnation of your character is played by... My daughter, <laughs> Annie Stark. How did that come about? Well, uh, it came about because Bjorn Runga, our wonderful director, came to me eventually and said, I'm having a really hard time uh, casting this role of the young Joan. Um, there actually had been a... a an actress attached who fell out because she was developing her own thing and doing a series on TV and stuff like that. Um, and I, and I really thought about it because I know, um, uh, I know my daughter very well and I know, uh, you know, it's hard for the daughter of somebody famous, uh, who wants to do the same thing as their famous parents. And they do not want to be perceived as being on their coat strings or their apron strings or whatever coattails. Um, so I, I whispered, you know, I literally almost whispered on the phone, well, like, my, my daughter's an actress. And I basically left it at that. And um, he, they had a long, long, like a three-hour lunch, and he, she did three different on-video auditions for him, and she got it. I remember hearing from not only from Bjorn, but from some of the producers, so 
Uh, she had just knocked it out of the ballpark. And one of the one of the things that Bjorn asked her to do, which I thought was so wonderful, in one of those takes was feel everything and show nothing, which is basically Joan Castleman. Joan, this is Elaine Moselle. Hello. Hi. Your prose is brilliant. It's clean and vivid and bold. Thank you. But you know what? The public can't stomach bold prose from a woman. <laughs> You're talented, I hear. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I love to write. It's my life. Don't do it. Excuse me. You want to know where your books will end up? Right there. On the alumni shelf. Go ahead, open it up. You hear that? That's the sound of a book that's never been opened. Don't ever think that you can get their attention. Who's? The men who write the reviews, who run the publishing houses, who edit the magazines. The ones who decide who gets to be taken seriously, who gets to be put up on a pedestal for the rest of their lives. A writer has to write. Right, it has to be read, honey. Has anyone got a light? Hmm? I mean, I thought the performance was wonderful, and I confess that although I've been a film critic for 30 years, when I was watching the film, I didn't know that she was your daughter. And I said to someone afterwards, it's brilliant, she's so good, and actually she looks like Glenn Close. <laughs> and they went, yeah, duh. <laughs> I think that's wonderful that people go go in knowing not knowing that Annie's my daughter. I think it, it makes her performance stand on its own, which it certainly deserves to do. The thing I was not around when she shot when she shot those scenes, and they were the first Bjorn shot the flashbacks first with Harry and with Annie, and I literally left town. I didn't want Annie to be burdened by a mommy, you know, even meeting me in the corridor after a film a day of shooting. Um, but the thing that made me proudest and I think really set the character was she could hold a close-up. A lot is going on in her face. And it was like a seamless transition to go from her face to to my face. How did it feel watching the film cut together for the first time with her scenes beside yours? I was very proud. And I think those scenes are so important to the, to the story. I mean, we were talking about people, uh, when people talk about the film, they talk about that very important scene with um, Elizabeth McGovern, where Joan Castleman hears that, uh, you know, you could, it's one thing to write, but a writer needs to be read. And at that point in the literary world, there were very few female novelists who were being read. That was a turning, you know, that's very important to the story. And do you think that, I mean, one of the things that the film is about is about the relationship between, you know, men and women and the way in which talent and power is perceived. And obviously we've been going through this extraordinary time with the, the Me Too movement. Do you think the film is particularly timely? Do you think that it speaks to the current issues? I do, because I think it lays down what came before. When I think of my mother, who was extremely gifted, who, and I, you know, I said at the Golden Globes, who never was able to fulfill her particular gifts or talents because she always was, uh, you know, secondary to my dad. And, but that was the tradition that she came out of. Her mother 
uh, who also, I think, I think my grandmother Moore would have been a, a, a wonderful actress, but she never, she, I mean, that was the last thing she would have been allowed to do. So they become these kind of handmaidens. <laughs> so I, I feel that in, in some ways I am fulfilling myself in, in almost representing all the unfulfilled women in my family that have come before. And it's not like, it's not like, my mother loved us, and she stuck with my dad through thick and thin. But that's that's different, you know. I, I think women get used to uh, defining themselves through their children and through their husbands. But I think where you get personal fulfillment is when you can you can have your own contribution as yourself, not through someone else. And I, and I think that that really gives someone a sense of accomplishment and it, and it doesn't have to be something grand. It's just something that they feel is theirs. I think that's what was on my mom's mind as she, she, uh, was nearing, you know, leaving us was what have I accomplished? Yeah. So it's very moving to think of her and think of how much that speech meant. And I, and I think, well, and, and so many people have said, you know, it's my mother. Not just women. You know, I, I, so I think it, it's very important because it reminds us of why the Me Too movement is so important. I feel what I've learned through this whole experience is that, you know, women, we're, we're nurturers. That, that's what's expected of us. We have our children, we have our husbands, if we're lucky enough, and our partners, whoever. But we have to find personal fulfillment. We have to fill our, you know, follow our dreams. We have to say, I can do that, and I should be allowed to do that. When you look back at um, the extraordinary range of films that you've done, and I presume there is still an extraordinary range to come, what are you, what are you most proud of? I think what I'm most proud of is that, well, look, my first movie role was Jenny Fields. <laughs> <laughs> Took me a couple of movies to get over that. <laughs> um, I, I think what I'm most proud of, for the most part of my career, is that I have subjectively chosen roles that I thought w- was good, and hope w- in the hope that other enough uh, of an audience would also would would also agree with me. I, and it's it's. Um, and I honestly can say that that's how I choose. You know, I've done movies for nothing. I've done so many independent films because of the story and because of the people that, I, that I'd be spending time with. And um, that's how I've chosen things. And so I can honestly say at this point in my career that, that it's the sum of, of those very subjective choices. And there's something incredibly gratifying when you look back and see what those choices have added up to. We're coming towards the end of our time. Let me ask you a final thing. There are famously two versions of Fatal Attraction, the version which everybody kind of generally knows, and then the version that was released, I think, only in Japan with the, the Madame Butterfly ending, mm. which we sort of got to see later on just as, as kind of separate scenes. And I have to say, my own feeling is that the original Madame Butterfly ending was the version that I would like to have watched. Do you, do you have a favorite version of it? Yes, that, that was the character. 
that I created and, and that I and that I loved and I believed in. She was not a, a psychopath. She was a a damaged, uh, needy person. And so the the thing about the the Madam Butterfly, it was it was seamless. It, but it was seamless in a way that American audiences get very upset by. That that they had to fight his his fingerprints were on the knife, and uh, when she killed herself with the same knife. Uh, he was sent to jail for it. Um, that's kind of a seamless, wonderful film noir ending. And for her, that was the true ending. I think she was much more self-destructive, you know, than, a, a as I said before, a, a, a psychopath. I don't want to live without you, Dan. I can't live without you. But when you push me away, you give me no other choice. I'll just cut deeper next time. I'll kill myself. I will. I'll kill myself. There's nothing else left for me, Dan. Oh, thank God. Nothing. 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 The one thing that happened that never was shot was in the beginning of the film, there's supposed to be a scene where she was at, literally at the opera with an empty seat beside her because she has invited Dan, watching Madame Butterfly kill herself uh, because she'd been, you know, abandoned. And not having that scene, I think, took away from a beautiful kind of you know, the ending that she did, she chose to end herself the way she'd seen at a butterfly. And it was about being rejected and the pain of that rejection. And also, I mean, uh, she had a whole history that was my secret, but never was in the script. So yes, I, I, I always will feel that the original ending was the right ending, but I don't think the film would have been the huge hit it was without that reshot ending, which basically gave the audience her blood, which is cathartic, you know, that you, you, the audience wanted to feel that there was hope that the family would be okay, that they would get back together. The last shot is a long tracking shot, focusing in on the, on a picture of the mother, father, and child. And that's just, that's classic. That's giving, that's making people not go out of the theater just uh, upset, but with, with a little bit of hope. But it was at, at the expense of who, who I thought Alex Forrest really was. Wouldn't it be great if after all these years, with the film having been the huge success that it was in that other version, if the original version was now, you know, re-released and people said, this is what the film should have looked like? I mean, I think it would have, well, they I think started, it, there'd be an started, audience for it. Yeah, I, I think, but I, I think they started, they introduced the, the idea of the tapes that the the wife listens to that wasn't in the original script, and that really complicates complicates things. They're trying to kind of get Dan off the hook, <laughs> so that shouldn't have been in there. <laughs> that didn't help <laughs> my my character. What I think would really be interesting, and I've said this, you know, on, on record that 
if you took the exact same story, but you wrote it from her point of view, she would become a tragic person. She wouldn't become a uh, somebody who's considered one of the evil, most evil people in the 20th century or something. I can't remember. Yeah, she would become a tragic figure because people would understand the why of her behavior. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. That was Glenn Close on a mobile phone from the mountains of Montana. Now, one of the things I really wanted to do when we set up the Kermit on Film podcast was perhaps introduce listeners to some films that I love, but they may not have seen. As you'll know, if you're a regular here, some of my favourite films are things like Jeremy and The Ninth Configuration, which I understand have very limited audiences, but I feel very passionately about them. Well, a film that I've been going on about for ages and which far too few people have seen is The Brilliant Grace of My Heart from writer-director Alison Anders. The film came out in 1996, and it's the story of a young singer-songwriter, played by Ileana Douglas, who gets work penning hits in New York's Brill Building. It was kind of proto-hit factory. Eric Stoltz is Howard, who's the writer who becomes her partner in life as in work. They write hits, they marry, they have a daughter, and they break up. Then she meets this Californian wunderkind, played by Matt Dillon rather brilliantly, who encourages her to find her own voice and make her own records. And love and tragedy ensue, and it all plays out against this extraordinary pop soundtrack, which kind of offers an alternative version of the music of the 60s and early 70s. And through it all, our heroine comes to record the great record she always dreamed of making. Now, the film is inspired by the real-life story of Carole King, of whom I'm a huge fan. Not so long ago, I saw Carole King playing live in Hyde Park, and what a brilliant experience it was. But Carole King's life story is kind of in the background of Grace of My Heart. It's not a factual film. It doesn't stick to the facts of her life. It is a fictional recreation. But it kind of weaves in and out of the truth. Because in real life, Carole King was partnered with Jerry Goffin, and they ended up writing hits like Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow? And then later on, she recorded things like Tapestry and became a voice in her own right. And you can see the Carole King story mirroring the events of Grace of My Heart. As I said, it's written and directed by Alison Anders, who I'm a huge fan of. And it's got songs provided by a galaxy of musical stars by people like Burt Bacharach and Elvis Costello. The soundtrack album to Grace of My Heart is one of my die-hard favourite records. It came out on CD and I just played it to death, but for a long time it was really hard to get hold of the film itself. It's now available on DVD at about time too. And if you haven't seen it, do get it on DVD. And many people haven't seen it. And one of the reasons is that when it came out, 
1996. It came out pretty much back to back with another film which I like, although not as much, called That Thing You Do, which is a Tom Hanks movie. And it's a story about a one-hit wonder band. They call The Wonders. And it's the story of their rise and fall and how for one brief moment in the 1960s, they're suddenly this huge popular sensation. Well, it's a very likeable film. It's got a very, very catchy theme tune. But it's not a patch on Grace of My Heart in terms of its depth. I mean, Grace of My Heart has this brilliant evocation of the 60s and early 70s pop scene. It's got these wonderful songs which kind of remind you of really great hits but stand up in their own right. A brace of brilliant performances. I mean, it feels like a documentary of a fictional life. And it has tragedy, and it has triumph, and it has love and heartbreak all played out against this wonderful pop soundtrack. I've loved the film for years, and I've gone on about how great it was. Not so long ago, Alison Anders came to the BFI, and she happened to be in London the same time as doing one of my MK3D live shows. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you'll know that I do a live show at the BFI South Bank once a month. It's about 90 minutes of just me talking about films with filmmakers, and Alison Anders was in town. And I was desperate to get her on the show, and she agreed to come on. I explained to her at the beginning, I am a complete grace of my heart Uber fan. Afterwards, God bless her, she gave me a photograph of one of the fictional bands who appear in Grace of My Heart that was signed. It's a still, a prop that was used in the film, which is now a treasured possession. Anyway, here is the interview that I did with Alison Anders live on stage at the BFI with MK3D at BFI South Bank in London with us talking about one of my favourite films that you really, really need to see, the brilliant Grace of My Heart. You've been at this a while, huh? Lady singers, they just don't sell. Male vocal groups, that's that's the ticket these days. You know, I wrote it. It's very nice to hear. Thank you. It uh, really is. Listen, the song is yours, guys. What you wrote here, beautiful. Denise, we need a B-side. What else you got? <laughs> the voice behind their power is Denise Waverly. I talked to Redbird today. They'll sign you for one single. I don't have a song to sing. So write something. Isn't that what I pay you for? So As you know, if you're a regular here, I am just completely obsessed with this film called Grace of My Heart. Have you, you heard of Grace of My Heart? So one, yeah, exactly. And it's a, it's a really wonderful movie, and I'm, I'm a huge fan of pop movies in general, but many of them are not so great. And when I first saw Grace of My Heart, I just fell in love with it. It's, just, it's kind of inspired by the Carole King story, and it's the story of the Brill Building, and it's got wonderful music written by people like Elvis Costello and uh, Burt Bacharach, and it's this just epic masterpiece and when it came out I said this is going you know, to be the biggest film of the year, it's going to be absolutely huge and then it actually it was quite difficult for it to find its audience but over the years it's kind of gained this real uh, cult following people just love it, everyone who's seen Grace in My Heart loves it, how many people here have seen it? No, you do the clapping thing otherwise it won't work on the thing, great, fine so how many people haven't? Okay. Everyone who hasn't, you need to go and get yourself a DVD of Grace of My Heart. It came out just, I think it was like a couple of months ago here on, on DVD for the first time, and it's just wonderful. And uh, Alison Anders, who is the director of Grace of My Heart, was coming here to the BFI because she's going to introduce Gas Food and Lodging tomorrow night. And since she was around, I said, I just I don't suppose we could possibly persuade you to come and talk about Grace of My Heart. And brilliantly, she said yes. So please welcome to the stage our first guest, Alison Anders! <laughs>
you haven't met before. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm going to ask you to, to hold. Is that okay, all right? Thank cool. you. Great. So, hi, you guys. <laughs> so, Alison is, as I said, the director of Grace My Heart. You take my word for it if you haven't seen it. It is just one of the most brilliant films. We've got a few clips that we're going to show from it. The first thing I want you to do is just explain the relationship that it has between, you know, the, your film, which is obviously a work of fiction, but is kind of inspired by some real-life stories. Well, um, I'll try and be concise here. When I was in film school at UCLA, I was inspired by a book that this guy, Alan Betrock, put out about girl groups. And inside the book were all these pictures of the Shangri-Las and all these 60s girl group bands. And, um, and then he also had these, this whole photo essay of songwriters in the Brill Building in the early 60s, songwriting teams, Carol King and Jerry Goffin. And, um, so Brill Building's like early hit factory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was all in New York. Everything happened there. And then, um, so I got really inspired by that, but I couldn't make that film yet. I, I was too ambitious while I was in film school. So uh, years passed, and I, you know, I've made a couple of movies, and... Um, <laughs> this opportunity to do this film with Ileana Douglas with Martin Scorsese producing. They just said, find the, he, he told Ileana, find your director and then find the, find the story. And so she and I kicked around a lot of things and then I went back to this idea about the Brill Building songwriters and so uh, he loved it because he had tried to do a film about Lieber and Stoller yeah big songwriting team from the 60s and from the Brill Building and he hadn't been able to crack that story so he was he was really into it and it's a post-production facility now and he and Ileana actually met there when he was doing um, I don't know which movie I can't remember now but there have um, been many yeah he's done a few <laughs> and so uh, so that's really how it came about. So, so I basically kind of like was inspired by Carol King, Jerry Goffin, a little bit of Brian Wilson, a little bit of a uh, few other people, <laughs> a little bit of Leslie Gore. Yeah. Well, look, so um, let's, let's start off in that case with showing a song. Yes. So firstly, what we're going to see is, well, tell us what the first clip is that we're going to see, which is... Oh, yes. So, um, so Ileana Douglas uh, plays Denise, and she and... Um, she and uh, Patsy Kensett mm -hmm. uh, have both left their partners who they used to write with, and now they're writing, they've written a song together, put together by their, um, their sort of manager, their producer. And uh, they've written a song for this Leslie Gore type character who is very kind of, you know, seems very normal but and and sweet and like preppy and in fact she's got this whole lifestyle they know nothing about and this whole inner life they know nothing about just as Leslie Gore I was very inspired by Leslie Gore's story of being a lesbian in the closet at the time that she was like had this ridiculous pop career you know Great. with beautiful music Great. let's see the first clip We are actors 
in a heartless play I smile my smile and play my part And forever hide my lonely heart My secret love good but you know the key to the song really is the build and you can be dramatic as long as it's truthful okay guys I know there's a lot of chefs in the kitchen here let's just try and get a great take and groove all right let's start roll tape what? my problem is I just want to play the whole song and then I want to play the whole movie so the musicians in the background yes so you real. work who are they? Yeah, they were real musicians. I mean, they, they were guys that uh, that would that are all the guys that we used were real musicians and not just background players for those scenes. So they would learn the songs ahead of time and really, you know, really made it look great all the, the time. One of the things the story does is that in the course of it she becomes a solo artist and she starts working with a producer, we'll see a clip in a minute, mm -hmm. she's, she's worked with John Turturro who's kind of a bit Phil Spector. A bit, yeah, and, and a this, bit Don Kirshner. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then this character comes in who is sort of inspired by Brian Wilson. Mm. So tell us a little bit about, because we're going to see a clip with Matt Dillon in a, in, a, in, a, in a minute, so tell us a little bit about the relationship between the Beach Boys and the film and how that all kind of interweaves. Well, again, it was one of these things where I was really inspired. I mean, Carol King never had an affair with Brian Wilson that I know of, but um, but but I kind of, you know, that's what you get to do when you're a writer. You get to make this stuff up. So I got inspired by um, putting... Um, Brian Wilson was just always a really inspiring figure for me in that he was, you know, a genius, but he had all these troubles and... Um, and I loved how he had also worked with girls, you know, with the uh, with girl bands, and that people didn't really think about him like that. But apart from the Beach Boys, he also worked with girl singers. And um, well, there's a very famous story of him driving along the Pacific Highway and hearing the Ronettes, yeah. and being so astonished by the sound of the Ronettes that he had to pull the car over to the side of the road because he was just like he couldn't drive. He was yeah. just so overwhelmed by the sound, which is such yeah. a Brian Wilson story. It really is. And on Pacific Coast Highway, yeah. no less. I know, I love it. And also that, that whole idea that he did, and it's not a, that he genuinely did have a sandbox built under his piano so that he could sit with his feet in the sand whilst composing. So that he, so this, this, I mean, hey, you know, that, that's how he Absolutely. wrote those brilliant songs. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, you, and then he worked with all those great, you know, he he knew to work with all those great studio musicians, you know, with the uh, the Wrecking Crew and yeah. all of those uh, guys and women too. And there has been a film recently about that. Obviously, in the case of Love and Mercy, which I know you yes. haven't seen yet, mm -hmm. but, I, but I know I think you should do because I think yes, you I know I should. It's great. It's not Grace in My Heart, but it is <laughs> it is really good. Let's see another clip, and this is a clip after yeah. um, Denise Waverley, our heroine, is sort of she's fallen into a depression, and John Turturro's character is trying to sort of get her out of it. She she had an affair with a married guy. Never a good move. No. Okay. You want to cut a record? Cut it out. I talked to Redbird today. They'll sign you for one single. I don't have a song to sing. For five years, you've been bugging me to let you record. 
I would have thought that you've been saving up material for this day. No, contrary to what you always suspected, I never held out on you. That's my girl. So write something. Isn't that what I pay you for? Yeah, write something. I don't... I don't know. I just... I don't think I have anything left inside of me, you know? It's just gone. It's just gone. Let me tell you something. Are you listening to me? This bullshit you're uh, wallowing in is happening outside of yourself. If you could just pick yourself up out of the crap, you'll realize that the guy, Mr. Married Guy, let you down, not your talent. Don't let these other bastards get you down. Come on. I have the perfect producer lined up. Come on, sit up. This guy, he's the new hit maker genius, the next Vundekin. For Spectre? Inspector history! Shh, Shadow Morton. Shadow Morton? Did you hear me? This guy's no Liberace, who I feel is valid in his own right. He's an Einstein in the control booth. So, wizard, direct your eyes right here. Take a run at the sun. While the Beatles and the Birds are both at work on what are being termed concept albums, teen favorites, the Riptides, are also changing directions. <laughs> So tell me about the music because in order to make a song, make a film about the Brill Building, you have to have great. So you turn to Burt Bacharach and Elvis Costello and Louis. So who, you know, who did you work? With and how did you get them on board? Well, it was kind of an amazing thing. Um, we, I was trying to figure out how we were going to put this music together. So. I did a list. I thought, well, why don't we put songwriting teams together, create songwriting teams? So I did a, a little sheet of paper with like songwriters of the era and then songwriters of the present day then. And, uh, and I showed it to my music supervisor, Kara Merackman, who was brilliant. And she, um, she looked at it and she, she looked at the paper and heard my concept and she goes, oh, she says, this is brilliant and I'm going to kill you because it's going to be so fucking hard. <laughs> <laughs> so we just started drawing lines and putting together these people, you know, well, let's put this person with that person and let's, and then uh, she said, what about Burt Bacharach? Burt Bacharach was on one side and Elvis on the other side. And she goes, what about Burt and Elvis? You know, so that was kind of this amazing thing and so I'll, I'll never forget and I do have to send you the the uh, little phone memo that I got of Elvis called kind of thing you know so I still have that but they were like uh, he was like but why me I mean I keep thinking I mean I, I please I want to do it you know work with Burt Bacharach he says but how you know, what about, I feel like women, this was so sweet. He says, I feel like, what about the women of the era? And I go, no, no. He says, what about Laura Nero? And I said, you know, they've all actually been approached. And some of them did, and then some of them didn't. And Laura Nero, we know now, was sick. But so we put together those teams, and then, uh, and then we got, you know, musicians involved to record the songs. Tell us about, sorry, I yes, have to ask please. you, tell us about the theremin play, because this is, this is the best, <laughs> you all know I'm a dedicated thereminist. This is the best theremin story ever, I've just said, is, is that, Yeah, the best theremin story, sorry, which is in it's, its own, field. yeah. So, um, so we're in the studio, because we had to pre-record all this music, my brilliant, uh, producer, by the way, is the one in the first clip that says there's a lot of chefs in the kitchen, that's Larry Klein. 
great producer. And uh, so we're in the studio in Capitol, Capitol Records, and there's a guy that, that's doing the theremin for um, Jay Maskus' song. And uh, he was like very proud of the fact that he had done my favorite Martian theme song, which was a crazy show in, you know, in the early 60s. Uh, but he, as we're going along in the session, he stops and he goes, wait, is this supposed to sound like the Beach Boys? And we were like, well, yeah. And he was like, oh, I worked with those guys. I did good, good. And we were like, vibrations? Let <laughs> <laughs> <So laughs> just, just, by the way, I did that too. I just, I just, you know, if, if that had been me, that would literally be the first, hello, I did the theremin <laughs> yeah. on good vibrations. Yeah, exactly. that, that's just, you'd have that like on a t-shirt yeah, and tattooed your on your forehead. Name. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we're going to hear a bit of mm -hmm. God Give Me Strength in a minute, which, yeah. in which I'm going to weep uncontrollably. Oh. But because I'm, I, I, I sound like I'm gushing, but you know I've been going yeah. on about this for years. I, I just I love, I and you know, my wife Ledrith Williams is also a, a, a writer and has written about. It. We just we just think you should have won every Oscar that year, and it was uh, it, it, it's such a wonderful. I'm starting to tear up. So, um, <laughs> what's the thing you're most proud of about Grace My Heart, other than the fact that I love it? <laughs> Number one, Number that. One. <laughs> um, you know, I love that it's... One of the things is I'm so happy that we were able to give music back to fans of this music. That fans of classic music from the 60s, we were able to create new stuff so that they got to have like 12 or 15 more songs to the whole you know, to the stuff that they love. And, um, and every time that I see the performances of the actors, I gotta tell you, I just, I'm pleased with all of that and my crew. I mean, it was really, it was, and that I got to make something to kind of purge myself of heartache. You know, it's always kind of amazing. You're like, how did I get this gig? I get to like do stuff that kind of helps me along my path, you know, and then I get to make something out of it <laughs> instead of just crying in my pillow. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to just watch a couple of minutes of um, God Give Me Strength. And obviously, Ileana Douglas is miming, so the voice that we're hearing is actually... It's actually uh, Kristen Vigard. and has got um, an incredible voice. Incredible voice. And I worked with her again after this. Uh, she was Kim Dickens' voice in a in a movie I did called Things Behind the Sun, and really fantastic. She matched both of them so well, and uh, yeah, she had a beautiful voice. Okay. And then uh, Matt Dillon is tr is you know trying to decide if he wants to produce her, and I get touched every time I see that okay. of him. Yeah. But if I'm strong, I might still break And I don't have anything to share That I won't throw away into the air That song is sung out 
So how many of you haven't seen it and are going to rush out and buy the DVD? <laughs> awesome. So just before, um, uh, before you leave, so you're here actually to do an introduction to Gas Food Lodging, is that right? I am, and is yeah, that tomorrow night. Tomorrow night, and that'll be here. Uh, that will be here. So again, if you want to come and see uh, Alison talk more, please do come to race. It may well be sold out, but you can check a ticket to the box and office. And it's a, it's a beautiful new print that I supervise, so... Fantastic. Yeah. I have something for you. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, go on. Okay, so this is... It looks like a still, but it's not. It's, an, it's a prop. It's an artifact from... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so... Oh, thank you. That is so... Thank you so much. And you... So that's, that's really sweet. But I am actually going to burst into tears. So while I do that, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking our Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was the brilliant Alison Anders, live on stage at my monthly MK3D show at the BFI Southbank. If you like the sound of the show and you'd like to come along, go to the BFI Southbank box office. You can find it online very easily. Uh, just a word of warning, the tickets do sell out pretty quickly, but we do it every month, as we have been doing for the last three years. Also, if you're anywhere near Newcastle on the 4th of February, my How Does It Feel tour has its final date on the Northern Stage on the 4th of February in Newcastle. I've written this book about being in bands and about playing music, and I've been touring with it, places like Manchester, Liverpool, Birmingham, London, Cornwall, the Isle of Man, Shetland, all points around the UK. But the last date of the tour is at Newcastle on the 4th of February. So if you're around, please do come down. It promises to be an absolute hoot. And the next Kermit on Film podcast will come live from the next MK3D show at the South Bank. And I tell you now, it is an absolutely guest-packed show. So if you're coming along in person, I'll see you there. If you're not, you can download it the day after the show. Thanks for listening.
The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.